Well, church, it is the, uh, the third Sunday of Advent. Advent, that word, means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And so Christians all around the world right now with us are celebrating the arrival, Advent, the arrival of Christ, the Messiah King that came to save his people from their sins. And, uh, and this King, though God in the flesh, was born a baby, uh, helpless, meek, and mild, and the difficult thing about the arrival of a child, um, of which there's a new one with us here this morning, if you didn't know that already, baby, baby Colt is back there for the first time, welcoming, welcoming them. But the difficult thing about welcoming a child or the arrival of a child is, uh, is the decision of a name, right? If you guys have kids, you know this. Uh, Jess and I are, are in the adoption process, and we are now active, praise the Lord. That's been a year and a half uh, in the in the making, and and so we're we're grateful for that. Uh, but we've been we've been talking about names, and if you're a parent, then you know this happens for for months before the child gets here, and and uh, we sort of have this theme going already with with our kids' names. It, we've <laughs> nerd alert, right? Uh, we picked Baptist history heroes, heroes from the faith uh, in, in in times past, and so Desmond is Desmond Carey after William Carey. Uh, pioneer missionary to India. Um, Ryland is Ryland after uh, John Ryland, a particular Baptist pastor in the 18th century in England. And so we've been thinking through names for the James baby number three. And you know, there's some rules, right? They're unwritten rules, but there are rules that no one ever tells you about. Uh, things like if you, are, you or your spouse ever dated someone, that name is off limits, just in case you didn't know that. Uh, or if you didn't even know about that boyfriend or girlfriend, it's still off limits. Um, if you're having a baby girl and, uh, and the name reminds your wife of someone that didn't like her in high school or that she didn't like in high school, that, that name is, is off the table. Um, and then you have to think through all the difficulties of nicknames and the way names pair together, right? There's some wisdom in doing that. Um, like if you're the, the man family, right? You, you can't name your daughter Anita. Because every time she introduces herself, she's expressing her desperation. I need a man. Some of you get that on the ride home. Uh, and then there's other terrible combinations. Someone had the terrible idea of naming their child Eileen Wright, which is fine unless you're a Democrat, right? Like, it's a terrible name. Uh, or Helen, who married a guy with the last name Back. Helen Back. And after marrying that guy, 10 years later, he said, yeah, it was pretty true. Uh, <laughs> names are important because they reveal a lot to us. And in God's word, he promised us a Messiah. He promised us a king that would come. And as he did, he gave us four names here in Isaiah, four titles that have a lot to teach us about who this Savior is and, and who he would be to us and why he was coming. And so we've been focusing this Advent season on Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And we've been walking through these titles and these names for this Messiah that was coming. So I want to remind us of the text. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. I want to read it to us again. You may have it memorized by this point, and that would be good too. And then we'll focus our time this morning on the third title, the third name. If you're there with me, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. Isaiah prophesied, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and here they are, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
This morning we dive into that third title, Everlasting Father. Now I realize this morning that I'm throwing a curveball at you for a couple different ways this morning. First, for most of us, when we think about Christmas, we think about baby Jesus, the son in a manger as everlasting father, which Isaiah just called him, this attribute, attribute brings about the most trouble of, of the ones that are, that are there. It's the most confusing. You see, we, we think about it, uh, at least at Christmas time, of Jesus being a baby. He's a son. He's a son to Mary and, and, uh, and an earthly father, Joseph. But more important, he's the son of God. And so we think about it in that, in that way. And then, as we begin to reflect and even to meditate on this everlasting father title, you think about it from the viewpoint of the Trinity, and it's confusing, right? How could the son, Jesus, also be the father, an everlasting father? And in the New Testament, it gets even more confusing because Jesus is never referred to as the father in the New Testament. In fact, he's always referred to as the son, and he himself refers to God as Father. In fact, in John's gospel alone, 75 times, more than 75 times, Jesus speaks about the Father over and over and over. And so what does this mean? And why would Isaiah include this in the prophecy? And why is it one of the four titles we're studying this week? Well, let me say a couple things. First, this does not mean that Jesus switched places with the Father in the Trinity, in the Godhead. If you begin doing things like that, if you begin to play musical chairs with the Trinity, your theology gets really, really wonky really, really quick. So that's not what's going on here. And so please hear me clearly from the start. That's not what's happening. There's not a trading of places or a trading of roles. The second thing and that I want to make clear, and this is really important. So the key to rightly understanding this name from Isaiah for Jesus is to understand that this is not about how God the Father and God the Son relate to each other. This is about how Jesus the Son would relate to us. Does that make sense? Of course in Scripture we see him called our brother and we see him uh, called our Savior and our Messiah, but here in this prophecy he's referred to as as a father. And the reason being is that this prophetic name for Jesus is about how his relationship to us would be like the father that we've always longed for. There would be a closeness with him and a relationship with him such that we would, we would see in him everything us as dads desire to be but could not be. Everything in us that as children that we, we would want from a dad but our dads are imperfect and they couldn't be. In Christ we have every one of those things perfectly. And so I just want to make that clear before we even jump in this morning that this is not about how the, 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 the son, Jesus, relates to the father. It's about how the son relates to us, everlasting father. It's an image. It's a picture of a relationship. Even there, though, I know I'm throwing a second curveball to you um, because I realize that we all have earthly fathers. And based on how that relationship was or is, it'll impact how you even hear that title for Jesus. Even how you hear this sermon, some of you have or had really good dads. And so your memories of him are are fond memories and you cherish those memories and you cherish him. But for many of you, you didn't have a great dad. And for many of you, you have some of the deepest pains in your life stemming from that terrible relationship. You agonize over that relationship. Maybe you were abandoned when you were little. Maybe he was absent. Or maybe he was absent and it wasn't even his fault. Maybe he passed away. 
at an, at an early time in your life, and, and he wasn't there for those pivotal moments in your life. Or maybe he was physically there, but life was just too busy, and he never made time for you. He never paid attention to you. You felt neglected. Or maybe he was abusive. In a room this size, and, and as many people as we have on the campus this morning, I have no doubt that there are some here that lived through horrors in your childhood, in your own home, as a result of your father, as a result of your dad. Maybe your dad passed away this year or recently, and it's still sore. It still hurts. It's still sensitive. And so even hearing dad or father is painful for you. Whatever the reason this morning, I understand there's probably a lot of pain when you think about the word father. And so when I say to you that Jesus wants to be your everlasting father, it does nothing for you. Nothing but hurt. For those of you in the room that had great dads and you think I'm overstating this or you think probably no truth there, listen to these statistics and I, I think it sheds some light on, on, on how these relationships, these father relationships impact our lives. National data shows that 71% of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 75% of teenagers in substance abuse centers are from fatherless homes. One California school study shows that 98% of discipline issues were caused by emotionally damaged young boys whose common characteristic was father loss. Many of the famous atheists in history, Freud, Nietzsche, Hume, Bertrand Russell, they had one thing in common, either an absentee father or a traumatic relationship with their father. So it not only affects their success in life, it's not that you can't be successful without a father, but statistically you have an uphill battle. You have a hard climb. It affects your faith, at least in the case of these famous atheists, and I think we would see it statistically across the board. And I share all that to simply say we have to understand that our relationship with our earthly fathers affect us in a, in a way that's much deeper than we would probably admit or realize this morning. And so even in a text like this where you hear everlasting father, I have no doubt that you're having an enormous mix of emotions all across this room and campus. So here's what I want to do. Last week, if you remember, when we went through the second name for Jesus, mighty God, I went to the Old Testament first, and I gave us three touchstones. If you remember, things that the Old Testament said about mighty God, and then we saw those things, and then we jumped into the New Testament to ask, does, does Jesus fulfill those things? Does, does he show himself to be mighty God in the Gospels? This week's a bit of a different approach. I don't preach sermons like this often, but I want to start with four types of fathers, earthly fathers, give you some characteristics. You can jot these down if you're note takers, um, but, but the reason I would do this is because these may not describe your dad perfectly. Um, they're probably not a, a perfect fit for anyone, but I think if we would all be honest and, and reflect this morning, we can probably relate to these titles or types of dads in some way. Even if you had a good dad, right, by our definitions, uh, you probably saw glimpses and you could say, yeah, I kind of see that in my dad, or I saw times when he was like that. And then, what I want us to do is, after those four descriptions, and I'll be quick with those, I want us to turn to Christ. And I want us to see in Christ our everlasting Father. I want us to see in Christ the one in whom no one else compares. The one who brings rest and peace. And the one how, no matter how great our dad might have been, or terrible our dad might have been, Jesus is our everlasting Father that offers us hope and a future and comfort and rest completely. Now, one disclaimer before I begin. I know this is difficult. I know this is difficult. Reflecting on your past and your dad may be tortured, but if you can, stick with me. 
Stick with me. My goal is not to minimize or critique our dads or even the dads in this room. My goal is not to try to dredge up painful past so that you have to grieve that this morning. My goal is to point you to Christ. My goal is to point you to the peace and rest that the everlasting Father offers you. And so with that, let's jump in. Before I walk through these four types, let me give a disclaimer. If they sound familiar or too smart for Matt James, it's because they are. I'm pulling from a few different sources. I'm picking and choosing and critiquing some of these categories, but uh, primarily a book called The Father Factor by uh, Stephen Poulter. And then work on this subject by J.D. Greer, Jason Gaston uh, have, have, have done work on this. And so this is where I'm pulling from uh, another guy named Jonathan Edwards, not the one from The, the, the Great Awakening. <laughs> he has just a really famous name. So that's where some of these categories are coming from, but let me give them to you real quickly. And you can, you can jot them down if you want to even help diagnose and wonder where the connections may be even in your own upbringing. So number one, the always critical never satisfied father. This is the dad that no matter what you did or how well you did it, you could never satisfy him. Uh, You scored 10 points in a basketball game, and as soon as you get done, you're pretty excited about that, and he comes over to you and he says, well, if you wouldn't have passed the ball every time, you could have scored 20. This is the dad that you study and you work your behind off for a B on that science exam. You get home and share that with him, and he says, it should have been an A. It should have been an A. This is the kind of dad that you never really know if you've done well enough, all right? You never really know if he's pleased. And so you're constantly working, you're striving, you're yearning, you're, you're, you're trying to please him to the best of your ability, right? If you had a dad like this, then there's probably a tendency or at least the possibility that you would project that back onto God, right? That no matter what you do, you always think, have I done enough to satisfy or please God? Would God be happier with me if I fill in the blank? Or you begin to play the comparison game, right? David Amos play, prays for 30 minutes a day. I only pray for 16 minutes a day. So God lo- must be more satisfied or pleased in him. I need to be more like that so he'll be pleased with me. That's the always critical, never satisfied father. Second, the annoyed father. The simplest way to, to describe this type of dad is that he's angry all the time. He's always angry. This dad's like a ticking time bomb. You know that at any moment, for any reason, for even the smallest little thing, he could blow up. He could blow up. You never know what to say or how to say things because he could explode. Maybe he frequently tore you down with hurtful words, angry words, words filled with, with pain. And perhaps, even this morning as I'm talking about it, you can still remember some of those words from decades ago. Some of those hurtful words that crushed you as a child. It's possible that this extreme anger was brought about or increased because of drugs or alcohol. It was just a part of your childhood. It's how you know your dad. It's how you remember your dad. This is the kind of father you lived in fear of. You walked on eggshells all the time. You never trusted him. You couldn't trust him because you didn't know which version of him you'd get. And so you kept him at a distance. You kept him at arm's length to protect yourself. Whatever you did, you did to make him happy, even though it wasn't driven by love, but it was driven by fear. If this was your dad, it's probably a tendency for you to project that back on God as well. Or it's at least something you should be cautious of. Perhaps you feel like every action or inaction is is a possibility of lighting God's fuse, the fuse of his wrath. You don't trust God, so you keep him at arm's length. Go back to week one in our series here, and, and you remember that first week was the, the wonderful counselor. 
And as we were applying that idea of, of Christ being our wonderful counselor, I gave you guys this application. Be brutally honest with the wonderful counselor. And you thought to yourself, even as I said that, maybe I couldn't be brutally honest with God because he'd blow up on me. If he knew my heart and if he knew what I was really thinking, if he knew how I was processing things, he would blow up on me because that's all you ever saw in your earthly dad. And so maybe you resent God. Maybe there's no real deep, affectionate love, just fear of his wrath. That's the annoyed father. Number three, the absent father. Maybe your dad was just never part of your life. Never showed up to your sporting events to watch you play. He never showed up to your dance recital to watch you dance. Never came to school plays or graduations. Never engaged in meaningful conversation with you. Maybe he just stared at his iPhone all the time. Didn't ask you how your day was, ever. Maybe he was physically present, but emotionally he was distant. And in your mind, that makes matters worse. Like, I was never enough. I I was never told how special I was or how much he loved me or that he was proud of me. One writer says on this this topic, this style of fathering made up 50% of nuclear families between 1945 and 1980. The leave it to beaver dad, right? That dads just weren't supposed to be emotionally engaged on that level. Maybe that was your childhood. One article I read this week said that there are three things that every child needs to hear in their development. One, I love you. I love you. Number two, I'm proud of you. And number three, you are really good at fill in the blank. And maybe you never heard any of those things. Your dad was absent, either physically or emotionally, and so you never heard any of those things. This week, I also read a quote, uh, Bo Jackson. Even though he went to Auburn University, and I can still admit, I can do that, that he may be one of the most talented athletes to ever live. He played professional football and baseball. Bo Jackson said this, and this is heart-wrenching. My father never saw me play a single sport, football or baseball. Can you imagine, he says. Here I am, Bo Jackson, one of the so-called premier athletes in the country, and I'm sitting in the locker room and envying every other teammate I have whose dad would come in and talk, have a drink with them after the game. I never experienced that once. Maybe that was you. Maybe that was you. Your dad was absent. And I think if we're not careful, we can project that back on God too. God doesn't really care. I know he's there, at least theologically, I understand that he's there, but I don't think he really cares about what's going on with me. Or where was he at in the midst of my pain and suffering? Or where was he at when I went through that thing last year and I didn't feel his presence? I didn't sense his nearness. He was absent. So those are the, the three, uh, the the. the, the the angry father, the always critical father, and the absent father. There's one more, and I'll mention this one quickly, the awesome father. The awesome father. All of the ones I just gave you are negative, but the reality is for many of us in this room, we had great dads. We have fond memories of our dads. Our childhood was, 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 was one we look back on with fond memories. Our dads were present. They were not easily angered. They were emotionally invested. Not perfect, but they clearly loved you and they cared well for you. This is my dad. This is my dad. He's, he's a great dad. He still is one of my very best friends in this world. And yet, even still, it's not a good litmus test for our God because he's not perfect. My dad, Craig James, is not perfect. And he would tell you the same thing this morning. And even with good dads, we can tend to look at them and expect things out of God based on the way they loved us. And yet, at the same time, praise God when we have our earthly dads displaying for us even just a glimpse of the way that God relates to us and longs to be with his children and fellowship with his children. Praise God for that. 
In particular, here in Isaiah chapter 9, how the everlasting Father, the Christ, the Messiah, relates to us as everlasting Father. So, in the time that we have left, let me contrast for us. Let me work us through some scripture and show us how Jesus is what our earthly dads were not nor ever could be, whether you had a good one or a bad one. Let's see why Isaiah calls this morning the king, this king, this king that was coming, the one born in a manger, everlasting Father. Number one is this. Our everlasting Father accepts you completely. Let this land on you this morning, church. Let it rest on you. This is the opposite of the always critical, never satisfied dad. Christ accepts you fully. And here's the thing. It's not based on what you've done. It's not based on your merit. It's based completely on him and solely based on his work done for you. Maybe you've seen this meme that's floated around the internet lately, and it's comparing religion to gospel. And it says, religion says, oh no, I've screwed up. My dad is going to kill me. And gospel says, oh no, I messed up. I've got to call my dad. That's the perspective. Why? Because I'm fully accepted in Christ. If I am his, if he is in me, then there is no fear of condemnation because he has accepted me completely. It's my father. If you struggle with satisfying your dad, if you struggle with pleasing your dad, listen to the word of God this morning as Christ's attitude towards us has given to us a fitting text for Advent. Listen to Luke 2. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, and listen to this, what they were saying, this, this multitude of angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Did you hear that? That's what Jesus is bringing. Peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased. Let that word rest on you this morning. That today you are pleasing to God if you are in Christ. He is satisfied. He is satisfied. Not based on your merit or work, but who you are in Christ. The Son lives in you. He lives in you. And so when God looks upon you, he doesn't see your working and striving and your effort. He looks and sees his perfectly righteous son, and he's satisfied. You can rest. Turn with me, if you will. I don't often get you to turn with me, but turn with me to Romans 8. Romans 8. I want you to see this, and I'm asking you to turn because I want you to see it in the text. Romans 8, verses 7 through 11. This idea of, 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 of God being satisfied and pleased with us as his children, as he's our father. Romans 8, verses 7 through 11. Listen to what the text says. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You say, wait, 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 Matt. I, you just said that God is not like the never satisfied dad. That he was pleased. But Romans 8 just said that God cannot be pleased. So which one is it? Say, no, 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 friend, you misheard. Look back at the text. That's why I asked you to turn there. Look at it. It says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But continue in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Oh, friend, this is the gospel. That's, this is the gospel this, this Christmas season that you could do nothing to earn acceptance, to please the Son of God in your flesh. In fact, the scripture just said it was impossible. You cannot do it. But God is satisfied in the blood of his Son. And that was done on your behalf. And if he lives in you, when he looks at you, he sees perfection. He sees perfection. Not your merit, but Christ's. And so as his Son lives in you, he doesn't see that striving. He sees his perfect Son. His work saves you. It's, it's his complete acceptance. Listen to what Zephaniah 3.17 says. The Lord will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is how pleased he is with you. If you're his son or his daughter, that's how accepted you are in him. So this morning, if you're wrestling with those feelings, and maybe even Christmas and the holidays bring it out even more, that, 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 you, that you long to be special to someone, you're special to God. You, you yearn to matter, for your life to matter. It matters to Him. He rejoices over you with singing. That's how much you matter to Him. You know how much He thinks about you and what He thinks about you? That even while you were in your mother's womb, before you knew anyone else or anyone else knew you, he planned to take care of you and to be an everlasting father to you. You know how valuable we are to him? King David says in Psalm 139 that even if I were to make my bed in hell, even there, he wouldn't quit thinking about me. That's how much you're loved by the everlasting father. Second is this. Our everlasting father is slow to anger. Unlike the easily angered father or the annoyed father or the, the time bomb dad, Psalm 103.8 says this, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so instead of being angry all the time, our everlasting father is steadfast. That means he's unwavering. Well, unwavering in what? Love. That's how our father is described. Our everlasting father is described, not anger, but love. Christ being slow to anger here in 103, Psalm 103, that phrase, slow to anger, is an incredibly strange word picture in the Hebrew. If you read it in the, in the Hebrew language, it literally reads, long of nostrils. If you've ever heard that before. Slow to anger in the Hebrew is long of nostrils. And you say, what in the world does that mean? Well, when you're angry, when you're quick-tempered, when you lose your cool, what happens? You're not, your nostrils flare. Right? That's a sign of a, a raging bull. We think about a bull that's about to charge into something, his nostrils flaring. But when you're controlled, when you're not quick tempered, what do you do? You take a moment, you breathe in, you close your mouth, and you breathe out through your nose because you're being patient, you're controlled. That's the picture we have of the everlasting Father. He's slow to anger. He doesn't blow up. He doesn't have a fuse where he's just easily, uh, quickly tempered and he could just blow up at any moment. He's ready to forgive you in the moment that you repent. That's him. He's long of nostril. He's slow to anger. He's patient and kind and long-suffering. Precisely because the ever everlasting Father is who he is to us. You may ask this question, well, if he loves us, 
If he's slow to anger, that means he wouldn't discipline us, right? You're thinking about your discipline or the discipline that was carried out for you by your father. No, precisely because he loves us, he disciplines us. But here's the difference. He doesn't do it in anger like I do when I get mad. He doesn't do it because, because he wants to blow up and crush us. It's always in love and for our good. And Hebrews tells us that even the best of earthly dads, and, of, and I know there are many in this room, great dads, even the best of the dads in this room, sometimes when you discipline your kids, there's a tinge of selfishness or anger. There's a tinge of sin in your heart because you're being impatient with the child. The scriptures tell us God is not like that in any way. That when he disciplines us, it's pure and it's right and it's good and it's perfection. It's for our good and it's for his glory. And there's no anger at all. And why? Think about this. Again, go back to the gospel. Remember the point here. Why is there no anger when he disciplines us? Why is there no short fuse or quick temper when we're in need of discipline? Because his anger, his wrath has been poured out completely on Christ. And that means there's not one drop, there's not one drop of wrath of God's anger that's reserved for you that he said, I'll just set this to the side in case they get out of line one day. There's none of that. He's poured it out completely in his son Christ on the cross. That's Romans 8.1. Listen carefully. If your dad was the always angry type, and that's what you expect from your, your heavenly father, from your everlasting father, the opposite is true. Stop viewing your everlasting father through the lens of your earthly one. And in fact, flip that and, and, and understand your earthly one, the imperfect one, the sinful one, through the lens of your everlasting Father who brings you perfect love and perfect discipline. Number three, our everlasting Father is always there. He's always there. And if all you knew was absence from your earthly father, either because he passed or because he was physically absent, he left you, or because he was emotionally absent, your everlasting father is the opposite. Psalm 27 verse 10 says this, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Let that wash over you. That there is no shrinkage, there is no loss, there is no drift in the Lord's love for you. Think about this. I mean, meditate on this thought this, moment, this, this morning. That if you never read your Bible again, if you never went to church again, if you never prayed again, his love for you would not change. How much of our love as earthly parents is based on merit or what we feel they deserve or their response or their life choices? Not with God. Why? Because his love for you was never based on your performance to begin with. You don't believe me? Listen to him say it. Hebrews 13 verse 5. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He didn't say, I'll never leave you unless you stop going to church. And then I might. Or I'll never leave you unless you quit reading your Bible. And then I might. Why? Because that love was unmerited to begin with. I'll never leave you. Now listen, that's not an excuse not to pray or an excuse not to go to church or an excuse not to read your Bible. In fact, if you are his child, you'll long for and desire those things precisely because he's our everlasting father that we want communion and fellowship with. And that's how we get it, right? Through his word and through prayer and through communion with the saints of God, the people here on this campus. And so you'll desire those things if you're truly his child. But we don't do those things because we're wanting to earn or, or, or gather his favor or because he's made it conditional. It doesn't determine our status before him. One of the clearest places that we see this in the Bible is in Jesus' own teaching. He's giving a parable. 
he, he's telling a story to teach about a, a son that goes away. We call the son the prodigal son. And in that, in that parable, he takes, the son does, the, t- the son takes his inheritance. He says, Father, I want what's mine. And he takes it and he leaves his father and he goes and he squanders it. Shamefully blows all of his inheritance. But the, the parable is, is maybe even perhaps the most profound when we consider it from the father's perspective. You consider how the parable concludes, and what you understand from that is that while this son was gone, while he was away squandering his inheritance, the father stood there longing for him, waiting for him, wanting desperately for him to come home. Yes, he's probably a busy man. He probably has a lot of commitments. He probably had many things that were weighing on him and and things that he had to do, but he longed for his son. He desired fellowship with with his son. How do we know that? Well, when the son starts home, what does he do? He can't help himself. He, he girds his robe and he sprints, not to chastise or rebuke his son, but to welcome him home, to embrace him as he comes home. John Piper says this. He says that with nearly every other parable that Jesus gave, he ended by giving the hearers something to do, right? Application. And oftentimes Jesus would say, go and do likewise, right? We hear that in the parables, but not here. Not in the parable of the prodigal son. There's no action step. John Piper says, we're supposed to simply just stop and worship. That John, that 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 is true. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. What manner of love is this? He's always there. He's never absent. He's never aloof. He's never distracted. He's never too busy. He's never emotionally checked out. That's our everlasting Father. You can go to him whenever, and you have his undivided attention. That's our everlasting father. There's one more observation I want to make this morning before we conclude about our everlasting father, and it's actually in the title itself. We've said it countless times this morning, but I don't want us to miss it. You see, even the best earthly dads, even the best earthly dads die. Their bodies wear out, and they pass away. And for those of you that have lost dads recently, you know the pain of that. It leaves a hole. It leaves a gaping hole in our hearts, that absence. And so this morning, find peace and rest in this. Isaiah makes it clear that King Jesus is everlasting Father. What does that mean? It means that when he rose from the dead, after his crucifixion, he rose to never-ending life. That means this morning, if your heart hurts this morning with real grief because your father passed, that in the everlasting father, you will never feel that again. (laughs) Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You know the really cool thing in the Greek right there? That word never in the Greek, it's incredible. Here's what it means. It means the exact same thing as our English translation. Never means never. Like ever, ever, ever will this father leave you because of death, because of abandonment, or absence, or being aloof, or being far off, or being distant. This this father never leaves you. So if you are in Christ this morning, you don't have to fear that. He is alive. Death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. It couldn't contain him. And so you can trust this morning, there is never a time where you'll have to be without this father. He's everlasting. I pray that brings comfort for you, especially if you've lost a father. 
And so the question for us this morning on the table is this. Is this your father? As I described this father this morning, either your heart is saying, yes, that's my dad. That's my father. That's my father that Matt's talking about. I know that to be true. I've experienced that relationship. Here's the other side of that, though. If he's not your father, today he can be. Oh, I wish we had time to unpack this, but the beautiful picture we see in the New Testament is that this everlasting father adopts us. Oh, and there's weight in what that means, that though you were far off, though you had no right to be called a son or daughter, you were brought into the family, and he made you one. And that is the invitation for any of you here today that's not this father's son, that today you can be a son, you can be a daughter. And in fact, you were created for him. You were created for him, for this relationship. And so regardless of what you think, when, when you hear father, and what that word dredges up for you, this Father can be yours today. Would you give your life to him? Would you right now say, I repent of my sins. I want to come home. Like that prodigal son, I want to fall into the arms of this Father. Find rest and peace there this morning. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you are good. And that God, no doubt this morning, there are those under the sound of my voice that are hurting because of the things that their earthly father did or didn't do. God, would you wrap your arms around them this morning? Would you love them like only our everlasting father can? Would you bring peace and rest like only you can? King Jesus, we thank you for coming that you didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but you came and put on flesh and died in our place. You are our everlasting Father. The way that you love us is unconditional and unmerited and never-ending. So God, I pray for every person here that they would either find rest in that or today they would be adopted into this family. God, I pray for the fathers in this room and mothers, that as we hear about this perspective on parenting and our everlasting Father, that you would call us to be even better parents than we've been. You'd convict us of where we've been quick-tempered or distant or absent. And that, God, we would, we would see our role as parents. The responsibility we have to train up and to disciple our kids, to see our imperfections and to point them to the one who has none. So for each kid in this room, I pray that that would be the case. Help us to fall into your arms, everlasting Father. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. A few items this morning. Uh, number one is this. I want to call us uh, quickly into a members meeting. If you're a guest with us, just hold tight. This is just a, a thing that we have to do at the end of the year, but you are certainly not being asked to leave. We would love for you to stay. Um, but I want to call us to a members meeting, and it's for the purpose of approving the budget for 2021. Uh, you guys have had those documents now for a few weeks. Uh, the budget, as well as the, uh, the recommendation from the finance team and the elders uh, as, 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 uh, as it concerns spending the overage, the, the surplus this year that has been taken in through tithes and offerings. 
And so you've had opportunities to see that and read through that, pray about that, and ask any questions that you may have to your elders or finance team. Um, and so as we're adjourned for a members meeting, I'll just ask, are there any remaining questions or things that are lingering that you would like clarity on as it concerns that budget or that proposal uh, to spend that $15,000 surplus? I see none in here, and I see a few out on the lawn and none there either. If there are any in the fellowship hall, I'm going to give you a couple seconds to just shout or run this way. All right, I'm going to assume there are no questions then. So what I ask you to do, it's going to be two votes just for the sake of clarity. The first vote I'm going to ask you to vote um, is for uh, the budget. So do I have a motion that we approve the 2021 budget? I see Ryan Griffin in the back and a second. Victor Gallippi uh, with the second. If you're in favor of that 2021 budget, would you just affirm by raising your hand? I realize I'm only seeing some of you. Um, Second proposal is the proposal with the surplus, the, the additional sheet that you were given. Uh, do I have a recommendation that we approve that proposal? I'm going to go with Chris. I saw you. Uh, what about a second? I saw hands everywhere. Ricky, I see you in the back, so we certainly have uh, um, that. If you're in favor of that, would you also affirm by just raising your hand? And if you're opposed, same sign. Okay. Both of those then pass. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness. This is just a testimony to the Lord of, of his moving and working in our lives uh, and in your generosity. And so praise the Lord for that. Um, Michael made a few announcements at the beginning, so I have no more announcements but one. Um, church family, there, uh, there comes a time where as a pastor you're led to do something that you never thought you'd be doing. And I can tell you, this is the hardest thing Jess and I have done in the decade that we've been married. For the last year and a half, um, I've felt increasingly convinced that God is bringing my ministry at Poplar Spring to a close. Jess and I, along with the elders, have prayed, have sought God's face that he would renew my vision, renew my zeal and passion, restore my, my, my direction and understanding of what he's doing here at Poplar Spring, but that's not happened. And instead, the Lord has only continually used his word and various circumstances to confirm that this is what he's doing in moving us. We have wept because there was a time when we thought that we would give the rest of our lives right here on Brantley Town Road, serving God and serving you. And so while it hurts right now, It hurts worse to see Poplar Spring drifting along without clear vision, without passion and drive from their lead pastor. And so our conclusion is that this is what God's doing and that he's calling me away and he's calling someone else here that's going to shepherd you faithfully. So with that said, I'm resigning as pastor of Poplar Spring, effective December 31st. And my last Sunday to preach will be December 20th. Let me make a few quick statements as clearly as I can because I know this is confusing and I know it's hitting some of you like a ton of bricks. This is not a sin issue. This is not a moral failure. 
Our elders are not asking me to step down and resign. In fact, they've prayed for months now that God would do the opposite and keep us here. There's no turmoil or division or disunity among our elders. This is not because of any one person or any family or any particular circumstance that's happened in the last few months. This is something that Jess and I have been wrestling with for over a year and a half. And something that we're now convinced God's doing. And we've just recently got a, gotten to a place where we have a peace about this decision and believe it's for your good. Listen to me, church. There's no way that I could resign if I was not fully convinced that it's for your benefit and it's for your good and it's for God's glory. This is not me going to another church. In fact, there's no opportunity to do that. And we have no clue what's next for the James family. Two weeks ago, in our first sermon series in this series, The Wonderful Counselor, the titles for Jesus from Isaiah 9, I told you that we have to be ready as believers to walk in faith and do whatever the counselor tells us, even when it sounds crazy and doesn't make sense. And so this is Jess and I trying to do exactly that. We know it's confusing, but we're trying to walk by faith because we believe this is best. Finally, let me say this. We've been meeting as elders, and Poplar Spring is primed for great things in the near future. And that's not just pastor speak. That's just not, that's not political speak. We believe that to be true, and we're excited for what God's going to do. There's some plans in motion that you'll hear about soon. But here's what I want you to hear me say. Listen to me, church. You can trust these men. Jay and David and Michael love you. You can trust these men. They've been on their face before the Lord. They've been meeting with other pastors and seeking counsel and guidance. This is not catching them off guard or by surprise. The Lord is working and moving, and you can trust these men. Here's what I need you to hear me say. Lean into them. Encourage them. Support them. As I close, let me just say this. We love you. When we moved here seven years ago, we left our families in Louisiana and we moved where we knew no one. And you've treated us like family. You've loved us. You have encouraged us. You've cared for us. And we will look back on this time. We'll look back on our time at Poplar Spring with the greatest of joy. Listen to me, church. One of the greatest joys of my life has been shepherding you and preaching God's word to you. From the guy that showed up one Sunday playing bass and banjo and the harmonica to the admin assistant, associate pastor, and then lead pastor, you have loved us on each part of this journey. You've treated us like your own, and it is, it is breaking our hearts. But we love you, and we want the best for this precious church. So don't stop being that church that loves people and takes in people from weird places like Louisiana. Exalt Christ, church family. And hear me close. Our mission, worshiping Jesus, sharing life, living on mission, share life and don't let the pain of this moment, don't let the pain of this moment keep you from true and genuine commitment. Give yourselves to one another, even though it hurts for things like this to happen. And then live on mission. Church family, there's a dark world out there that needs you to be faithful to the task God's called you to. We love you. Those words don't even sound 
deep enough or meaningful enough, but we love you. I'm going to call Jay up. He's prepared to say a few things. Church family, on behalf of your elders, uh, Michael, David, and I, we realize that news, this news is shocking to most of you, and, and no doubt it hurts deeply. It hurts us collectively as a church, as we're losing a wonderful pastor. It hurts each of us personally, as we're losing precious friends, who for many of us are more like family. In moments like this, it's hard to process what is being said due to the shock of what has just happened. But please hear me well. As your, your elders want you to know three things. One, God is sovereign, and he does not make any mistakes. He's all-knowing, and none of this caught our Lord by surprise. And even though this is painful for us, rest assured our God is good, he is loving, and he is faithful. We are his church, and he will see us through this. Two, know that this has not caught your elders off guard. We have been walking with Matt for months now uh, through this. As Matt has said, his leaving is not the result of any sin issue, is not the result of any disunity among the elders. Matt's not running from anything, and he's not running to anything to cause him to resign. Our desire has always been, always been, that Matt would stay. But we trust his decision based on what he feels the Lord is leading he and his family to do. As difficult as this situation is, we must go forward as a church. Know that your elders are already deeply involved in what our next steps as a church should be and that we're going to share more details with you very soon. In the meantime, we encourage you. We encourage you to, to lean on our Heavenly Father. We encourage you to lean on each other. We are all part of the body of Christ, and as such, we are to support one another. So we ask you to be willing to help those around you, and we ask you to be willing to be helped. Lastly, although there will be a lot of different emotions that you're going to have in the days and in the weeks to come, your elders would ask you to do two things specifically. Even in the midst of the pain, we ask you to thank God. Thank God for the years that Matt has been our lead pastor. If you can think back a little over three years ago, the Lord used Matt to shepherd us, this flock, at a time that was very difficult for us as a church body. And we're all the better for it. Thank God for that.
Second, we would ask you to pray. Pray for Matt and Jessica. Pray that God, in his perfect timing, will make his will for them very clear as to what the next steps would be. We ask you to pray for our church. Pray for the church as as we grieve the loss of the Jameses and that the Lord will lead us as we begin to, to look for our next lead pastor. Third, we ask you to to pray for your elders as we continue to shepherd you uh, through this period. You're likely going to have questions after you have processed all that has been said today. Please feel free to, to contact any of your elders with any questions, any concerns that you may have. Know this. Your elders love you. Your elders are here for you, and your elders want to help you walk through this. Next Sunday, uh, the last Sunday Matt will be preaching, we'll ask Matt and Jess and Desmond and Ryland to come forward, and and we'll pray over them. But we don't want to end the service today without uh, going to our Lord, praying for Matt and Jess and for our church. So I'd ask David, if he would, one of our elders, to come and close us in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, this day, like all others, you've created is yours. Lord, and there's a purpose and a mission in all of it. Lord, and that's to glorify you. Right now, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to understand how how all this works together, but we trust and believe, Lord, that this day, like all of us, is yours, and we have a mission, and we need to do that, Lord. In the days and weeks and months to come, I pray that you would make this clear. Lord, I also can't ignore that this is a difficult day, uh, a sweet family, uh, a shepherd are leaving us. Lord, difficult for us and for them. Lord, I pray for, I pray for comforting and for strengthening and direction moving forward. Well, because we love them and they us, this is difficult. Our words uh, can help, but not as much and ultimately sufficient as the grace that you can provide and dwelling spirit within us. Lord, please do so. Comfort us. Lord, for strengthening, Lord, it would be easy and convenient and natural to shrink back from the mission and the body at such a time as this. By your grace, would you give all of us supernatural resolve and a strengthening and direction so that we can press on, Lord. Lord, would you guide Matt and Jess and Poplar Spring. You have created the church and left believers here to make your, no, your name great, Lord. I pray that you would do that. Lord, we desire to do that. We also believe and know that you're not a God of confusion or chaos. So, Lord, we ask that the James have clear direction as they move forward, clear and unmistakable. For Papa Spring, we pray the same, Lord. Lord, I pray specifically for Poplar Spring, Lord, that you, would, that you would light a fire within us, Lord, that you would set us on fire, Lord, for you, uh, for your mission, and for your own glory. Lord, here we are. Use us. Send us. Make our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.